Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our big island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Welcome to this edition of Island Conversations. If you are on the Big Island of Hawaii, you may listen to Island Conversations on Sundays on KWXX and on B93, B97, and the program rebroadcasts on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo the following Friday. The name Greenwell is familiar to most people who live on Hawaii Island. Henry Nicholas Greenwell arrived in 1850, and the now very large Greenwell family has been involved in ranching, agriculture, land use, religion, and politics since then. We are joined by Henry Nicholas Greenwell's great-granddaughter and family historian, Miley Melrose. Aloha, Miley. Well, good morning, Sherry. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here because I know that you really, really make a practice of documenting the Greenwell family history. So it's kind of fun to be able to have you share it with us. Let's start with Henry Nicholas Greenwell. He was from England. How did he happen to wind up on the Big Island of Hawaii in 1850? He was born in the north of England in Durham, and he was the baby. He was the youngest of five children. So he had three older brothers and one very talented older sister. The way it was set up in England is the eldest son got everything, primogenitor. So he had an older brother who ended up being a minister and never having any kids. And then he had another brother and another brother and a sister. So he was the baby. He would get nothing. So his parents sent him off to Sandhurst the Royal Military College in the south of England when he was 12, 13 years old. He was that young? Very young. And Sanders is quite something, because I went actually to visit Sanders with my sister Amanda. This is where Prince William and Prince Harry also went to military school. And it's a great big giant building that was designed actually by a Frenchman who was so appalled by the way the British fought, probably against Napoleon, that he said, you English really need to work on this. So he built this giant building and boys, these are boys, 13, 14, 15. Greenwell gets out when he's 15 years old and is a private in the infantry. He's not on a horse. He's on the infantry. He's on his feet. And he's in the 70th Regiment of Foot. England is the great powerhouse. You know, it's taken over Europe. It's got Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, bits of South America, Africa. So Greenwell is waiting to see where he will be sent. So I think he was excited. And you could make money. He gets sent to Ireland. And this is no fun at all. Ireland is a horrible, constant thorn in the side of the English. And the Irish hate the English more than the English worry about the Irish. He's sent over there. All he does is march around. He's up in Belfast. That expression, you got your marching orders, is from the British Army. You march from town A to town B, and you spend the night in the barracks, and then you march from town B back to town A. It is really ridiculous. But you're a presence, you're in the country, and they were thousands of British soldiers in Ireland at the time. And Greenwell is there when the horrible potato famine erupts. And this was a devastating, devastating moment because it's probably like the AIDS outbreak or something. Nobody knows what's happening. Nobody knows why the potatoes, you know, they look okay on the surface. You have little green leaves and then they wither and then you dig up the dirt and it's 
disgusting blackness under the ground, and all the peasants in Ireland are living on the potato. You could have an acre of potatoes, you could feed your family, and suddenly there are no acres of potatoes. The British don't know what to do. There is no recipe book how to help an entire country. So they bring cornmeal from America and they try to feed the Irish cornmeal and all the Irish people get dysentery and corn has nothing in it. A potato is actually kind of a nutritious vegetable. Greenwell turns into a lieutenant in the British Army and then he gets sent off to Kerry and he actually is put in charge of attending all these meetings where they vote thousands of pounds putting the Irish to work building roads. If the Irish build roads, then we'll pay them money and then they can go to the store and buy some food and feed their families. But there is no food in the stores because the British are taking all the wheat and corn and butter and shipping it out of Ireland to England. I mean, it's just a terrible mess. And Greenwell is left there to be a witness to this. And he's writing letters to the public works people in Dublin. He keeps saying, there's going to be a riot. The people are doing such a good job of putting up with this ghastly privation. The little children are dying. People are freezing. You have to do something. So in the end, he goes back to England and he leaves the military. He just quits his position in the army. What he decides to do is turn the page. He's going to go to Australia. And so Henry's not a poverty-stricken young man. I mean, he is born a gentleman. His father has a beautiful estate in the north of England. But strangely enough, in 1848, his father basically goes bankrupt. So you'd have to say that branch of the Greenwell family is having a hard time. So he leaves London. He goes to Australia. Long voyage on this ship. And he gets into what those days is all called New South Wales. Today it's Victoria. But it's all New South Wales. And England has put a lot of effort into Australia because, of course, they've lost America. You know, we've gotten independent, so they can't send their prisoners to America. They can't send all their younger sons to America anymore. They're sending them to Australia. He thinks he's going to be a sheep rancher because Australia has turned in 1848 into like the largest exporter of wool. It used to be Spain. They were the big exporters, but now it's Australia. They've sent the Merino sheep, and England is sucking up wool like a big thirsty sponge. People are making a lot of money, and Greenwell's got money in his hands that he can go buy thousands of acres of land, and he rides around in Australia for like six months. And Mr. Greenwell keeps journals. He keeps little books, and he writes down things like, today I rode 10 miles into the gloomy, somber gum trees, and I had a nap under a tree. And They're not earth-shaking reading. He does not find beautiful girls under the eucalyptus trees of Australia. He plays shuttle door with a couple of Miss So-and-Sos, and he thinks they're very pretty, but he's a poverty-stricken young man in his 20s. Nobody's going to marry Greenwell. Then he writes in his diary, I read about the California gold rush. A few months later, he leaves Melbourne and he goes to Sydney and he writes in his diary, I have seen Captain so-and-so and we have agreed I can take three tons of goods to San Francisco for X pounds. And he runs off and he buys shovels and tin tongues and flour and things to make bullets and canvas to make tents. And he is going to go to San Francisco and sell goods to the miners because he's reading about this incredible gold rush in California, which is actually an incredibly unknown part of the world at that point. It's a three months trip from Sydney across the entire Pacific to get to what was called Yerba Buena, 
And if you think there were nice charts of the California coast, forget it. No, there were not charts. There was no handy atlas of where is the bay. And California's coast was shrouded in fog, and it took forever. But they finally got into the bay. There should have been Greenwell's big moment. He should have been raking in the dough. No. What happens when boats sailed in for the gold rush, all the sailors jumped ship. The boats would come in. Everybody would just jump off the boat because they all had gold fever. All the sailors wanted to go into the hills. They wanted to dig up a gold nugget. Greenwell had to unload his goods by himself. He got injured. He ends up apparently unable to walk, gets pneumonia. He's fairly miserable. And somebody comes to him and says, you know what, Greenwell, you should go to Hawaii. The king of the Sandwich Islands has wonderful physicians and you would do much better there. So in December of 1849, he gets on this boat. San Francisco burned down on like Christmas Day of 1849, which is just crazy. So I imagine Greenville being trapped in a horrible boarding house room, unable to walk, being lifted up out of his room, you know, carrying him through the streets. And of course, there are lots of homesick Hawaiians. There are lots of Hawaiians in San Francisco who have come up, of course, to dig gold. And they're great sailors, so they could be on the boat coming from Honolulu and jump off the boat. And wintertime, they all are homesick. Everybody wants to get back to Hawaii. So Greenwell arrives in Hawaii on like January 12th, 1850, He's taken out of the boat, apparently, on a stretcher, and he has to recover. And he sets up a little um, import-export business with a fellow Englishman called Mr. Heap. And if you look in old, the Pacific Commercial Advertiser, you will see ads for Heap and Greenwell. And these two young men are meeting boats and buying things. Well, did Henry Nicholas Greenwell get well then immediately upon arrival in Honolulu? How did he go from not being able to walk to being able to walk? It's kind of interesting. England had little hospitals. There was a place called Little Greenwich in Honolulu, probably by Paoa Valley. And then there was a British consulman called Mr. Miller. And he actually built a little hospital kind of on the outskirts. I mean, Honolulu was pretty small, but it was the home of the king and queen. It was very small, but it was very lovely. But yes, Greenwell did recover and he got better. So now he can walk and now he can make money. For some reason, a fellow Englishman, we think Mr. Holdsworth, trouble is we've lost lots of journals. There's no journal right now that says what happened in Honolulu. Except you have obviously found enough journals to know all these little, I'd have to say, arcane details about Henry Nicholas Greenwell. So where was all this information? available for you to even find. Hallelujah for the Kona Historical (laughs) Society. And hallelujah for Greenwell when he died. It appeared all his little yearly diaries, they were stacked up. I mean, he kept them. He referred to them. Unfortunately, apparently the story is that his wife and daughters may have gone through some of these journals and determined that what was in them was not for public reading and threw them away or burned them up or dumped them in the outhouse. Horrible, horrible. But there was a stack of them left up in the family mountain house that was discovered by Sherwood Greenwell's older brother, Gilroy. And then Gilroy took these journals and they ended up in the hands of the Arthur Leonard Greenwell's in a suitcase. And when Amy died, Amy Greenwell of the Garden, she left them to her brother and Sherwood had them transcribed and Sherwood gave them to Kona Historical Society. So then, of course, they've been transcribed and I get to read them because I'm very curious, like my mother was very curious. Then, of course, he gets to Kona. Mr. Holdsworth sends him over here. And this is where 
you just have to imagine that you're a young Englishman sailing down the Kona coast. In 1850, then you come into Kealakekua Bay for the first time and you look up, you know, you look at the lava and you're like, oh man, I am never going to live here at the shore. But you look up at the hillsides and it's green and it's verdant and it's beautiful. And you think, this is a land of opportunity. What could I do here? And he's got in his brain, he's come from Australia, all these merino sheep. They had to bring those sheep to Australia. You have to create markets. This was a man who was just longing to create goods and sell them to somebody. I mean, he really was kind of funny. He had a merchant's mind. Forget the army. So is that the first thing he did was open a store? Well, the first thing he did was start to grow pumpkins and oranges. The reason we know this is because Mr. Greenwell was accused of a very bad crime. He was accused of killing a Chinaman, which was really bad. And so where you find the history of this point in his life is in court records. Court records said Mr. Greenwell had 12 Chinese immigrants living with him at Kalu Kalu, where the Kona Historical Society is today. And you think, Chinese? How did he get 12 Chinese immigrants? The Hawaiian government paid an English sea captain on the thesis, Captain Cass, to go to China and bring two shiploads of Chinese men to work in the young burgeoning sugarcane industry. The Hawaiian population was dying. It was really a very horrible time for the Hawaiian population, but for all the white people who had come in, we're like, oh man, who is going to work? Who's going to do the agricultural work? Because we're all gentlemen, or we're too feeble, or we can't do it. And so they thought, we'll try Chinese. And somehow, Mr. Greenwell, who did not have a sugar plantation, because Kona has no water, so it's a lousy place to have a sugar plantation, ended up with so many Chinese. And in the court records, it said this one particular man was called Salai. He was kind of sick. And so Mr. Greenwell sent him out at night to pollinate pumpkin blossoms. And you're thinking, what? But having just read the book, The Poisonwood Bible, like in Africa, if you don't have the pollinators, Hawaii had no honeybees. They were bringing in honeybees. Greenwell had big hives. It was Mr. Paris, apparently. Mr. Paris, the minister's brother, brought the first honeybees into the big island. So this was before we had the honeybee or the little moth or whatever pollinates a pumpkin at night. We had this nice Mr. Chinaman who maybe knew about this from China, Salai. In those days, if you were an indentured Chinese person, you had no free will and you could not run off to Kailua and go fishing by yourself, and apparently Salai like ran off once, and then the Hawaiian policeman had to bring him back, and then he ran off twice with somebody else's money and a jacket and came back with a big fish, and then he ran off again, and then Mr. Greenwell jumped after him and beat him up. Several days later, Salai died. And hang in there for the rest of this story. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Today and next week, we're talking with Greenwell family historian Miley Melrose, who's the great-granddaughter of Henry Nicholas Greenwell. Before we get back to Miley, let's hear from our generous sponsor, KTA Superstores, which employs nearly 900 people here on the island. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. 
Back to Miley Melrose and more of the story of the Greenwell family, starting with Henry Nicholas Greenwell. And so then several days later, he was accused of manslaughter and had to go to Honolulu and had to face trial, but was not found guilty. But a very low point in Mr. Greenwell's life. Well, I would imagine, was it a jury trial? It was, but it was a jury trial with all white men. I was just going to say, that's who would have been on the jury at that time. It was. It's just incredible. They had those expert witnesses, and they had people who'd been in China and said that, oh, yes, we know the Chinese. They can just will themselves to die, and they can lie down on an island, and 20 people will die in a night. And then, of course, there were people who actually knew Mr. Greenwell and said he was a nice man, and they couldn't ever believe he'd do a horrible thing like that. And then there were people who said, no, he was really very mean. So it's one of those awful things that I believe the family ignored. It happened in 1852, and he was tried like on January 2nd and 3rd of 1853, and then he just kind of fell off the radar screen and stayed in Kona at his Kalu Kalu and started just growing orange trees. Well, I read that he actually purchased his first land in 1850. Yes, he did. What, what do you know about that? Well, see, Mr. Greenwell arrived at the perfect time to arrive in the Hawaiian Islands because the law until the Great Mahele, which took place in like 1848, 49, 1850, the entire idea of private land ownership did not exist. But the constitutional government, which was established with, well, missionary descendants, everybody, people in Honolulu thought the Hawaiian population was dying. And they said the best way to get the Hawaiian people back on their feet was for people to have their own pieces of land, build their own houses, get one wife, raise your children, and be prosperous little yeoman farmers. It's like they picked this idea up, you know, probably from New England, but probably from lots of places in the world. They thought this was going to work. Unfortunately, we're dealing with the Hawaiian kingdom, which has not a great communication system. The island of Hawaii is extremely sparsely populated. People are living in Waimanu Valley and Waipio. They don't see newspapers for months on end. So the idea that all the Hawaiian population can be alerted to quick register your kuleana before a deadline and pay. You know, when you submit your little map of your land that you've lived on, which the government said we will give you, but you have to prove that you've been on it and that it, that you're actually you know, living on it and you have a house and everything. Tons of people just ignored this. They either didn't get the message or they thought it was a silly message anyway because how could somebody actually own their land? You know, the land was just the land and it belonged to our grandfathers. So it didn't work out very well. But who it worked out extremely well for were people like Mr. Greenwell who came from societies that had private land ownership and this was his big chance. So he purchased probably like 250 acres of land at Kalukalu, not from the sea. The part by the sea had already been bought by Mr. Kavanaugh, and it was a piece of government land. And he writes to the Minister of the Interior, Mr. Wiley, a Scotsman, and said, I am interested in this piece of land. And Mr. Wiley writes back and says, well, if it's government land and nobody else owns it, you may purchase it. And they would set these really kind of crazy prices, you know. And Greenwell said he had to raise funds from his relatives in England to buy this land. So it took him a while to actually get the ownership in his hands. And then the land, when you say it's at Kalu Kalu, that essentially is where the Kona Historical Society is right now in South Kona, that parcel of land? Absolutely. That is his first home piece of land. 
What's interesting is there is no record. We can't put a date. I mean, it sounds like he built his house and maybe even the store, 1850 at 51, 52, when he was here. But this is gone. Isabella Bird said it was up in 1872. Isabella Bird, who many people know as an author, she visited Mr. Greenwell. Well, she did. And it's nice because Isabella Bird has a book, you know, Six Months in the Sandwich Islands, which does not mention Mr. Greenwell. If you read that book, you'll say, well, there's no Mr. Greenwell here. There's Mr. Wall. There's Mr. Davies. But Isabella Bird did write back to her sister in Scotland. And there are unpublished letters, which were collected by a professor at the University of Hawaii and typed up. And then you can see the originals in the archive in Edinburgh, which I have done. Isabella Bird sailed into Kealakikua Bay. Well, she didn't sail. She steamed in on the Kilauea. And she says in her letter to her sister, well, I wrote a little message to Mrs. Greenwell telling her that I was arriving and I would so like to go horseback riding with her and fern collecting in the hills. And she said, oh, Mrs. Greenwell wrote back and said, I cannot go horseback riding with you and fern collecting because I am too near my confinement. Mrs. Greenwell has just had her fourth child and she is not going to put on Turkish trousers and jump on a Spanish saddle and leap around Kona because I'm sure Mr. Greenwell would really disapprove. <laughs> but Miss Bird writes in these letters. Miss Bird does come to the store. She mails her letters from Greenwell's store. She has long conversations with Mr. Greenwell, like four hours. Mr. Greenwell lends her all the copies of his English magazines and newspapers and lends her his horses to go to Ka'avaloa, and or to ride up on the mountain because she's staying at the Todd's Hotel just down the road. And where is the Todd's Hotel, or where would it have been? It would be in the Ahupua'a of Onoli. So there's Kalukalu, where the Kona Historical Society is, and then you go south from Kalukalu, and that's Onoli, where the road is up to Konawaina High School and Christ Church. There's Onoli 1, and then there's Onoli 2. And the Todd's are right there, in Onoli 2, and then you're going to hit Keopuka. And they had a very nice hotel. It had ads in the Honolulu paper, and Mr. and Mrs. Todd had all kinds of visitors. But Miss Bird stayed there quite a while, after several weeks. She was in Kona for like two and a half months because the steamer broke down and couldn't get her away. So she had to have adventures, which she did. Okay, so let's back up. I read that Henry Nicholas Greenwell had purchased several hundred acres, which you confirmed around 250 acres or so, and was growing oranges. But he also started growing coffee, I understand. Well, I would say Mr. Greenwell felt Kona was an excellent place to grow coffee, and he purchased coffee. He buys thousands of pounds of coffee from Hawaiians. But I have never seen that he is growing it. He buys it, he puts it in bags, he takes it down to Kavaloa, he sells it to Honolulu. There are ads in the Honolulu newspaper that if you want the best Kona coffee, you will buy it from H.N. Greenwell, which is kind of fun. He wants to promote the coffee industry. It's his coffee, not that he grew, but that he purchased, that is sent to the World's Fair in 1872 in Vienna and is sent to Philadelphia in 1876 for the centennial of America, 100th birthday. These big barrels, wooden barrels that say H.N. Greenwell, Kona coffee on them. It's there, you know, yay, he had his fingers all over it. But I don't think he grew it. Interesting. I did read also that the first coffee was actually brought here to this island by missionaries at Kahikolu Church. What do you know about that? Yes, they always put the name Mr. Ruggles. 
But see, coffee was already growing on Oahu. I mean, that wonderful Spaniard, you know, Marin was growing coffee. And Mr. Ruggles somehow brought it to Kona because the American missionaries, one of their first converts was lovely chiefess Kapiolani, not King Kalakaua's wife, Kapiolani. But this is a Kona chiefess. She's the one who marched down to Kilauea, Halima'uma'u, and, you know, defied Pele on her little bare feet. Mr. Paris ends up living in her home site on the side of Ka'avaloa, and she's got all these plants, orange trees and grape vines, because she's such a good friend of the missionaries. I'm sure Mr. Ruggles brought the coffee plant over here and planted it up there, and it did really, really well on the side of Kealakekua Bay Cliff, where it rains, and it was like a huge success. And coffee, as anybody knows who's been around coffee, it's easy to propagate. The beans fall on the ground, it rains on them, suddenly you've got 200 coffee trees waiting to go. And so it just spread like wildfire. Let's talk about Mrs. Greenwell. Mrs. Greenwell. Mrs. Greenwell and her 10, their 10 children. Now, I want to mention before we go on, Miley Melrose, you actually do sort of what I will call a living history thing where you dress up as Mrs. Greenwell, who would be your great-grandmother. My great-grandmother, wonderful unsung hero of the Greenwell story because she didn't keep any journals, right? So it's really easy to have her voice just disappear. But I'd have to say thank you to Jill Olson, the former executive director of Kona Historical Society, for realizing that people like to know the backstory. Jill got a grant and it was decided that Mrs. Green will be the perfect person to be the spokesperson of the cemetery at Christ Church Episcopal because the little graveyard in Christ Church is the oldest graveyard stuck to the oldest Anglican church in the state of Hawaii. It is older than St. Andrew's Cathedral and it has some interesting people buried in there. Mrs. Greenwell and Mr. Greenwell are buried there so we could all dress up and pretend that we're ghosts and run around in the night and chit-chat about our old neighbors and friends and maybe some people we didn't know well at all. But it's fun because they've all been dead a very long time so I don't feel like we were going to hurt anyone's feelings. How did Henry Nicholas Greenwell meet Elizabeth Greenwell and then what happened? And then what happened? Well, this is a lovely story. 1866, Mr. Greenwell has an orange grove. I believe it is the largest orange grove in Kona because this is the year Mark Twain comes to Kona, Samuel Clemens. And he rides through, he never says the name again, Mr. Greenwell. He goes, oh, we've gone through the most gigantic orange, you know, thousands, 10,000 orange trees, which seems a shocking amount, but apparently it was there. And that was Mr. Greenwell's oranges, which are descended from Captain George Vancouver's orange trees that he brought to Hawaii in 1793 and 4 on board his ship with Archibald Menzies. So, you know, one thing leads to another. But anyway, he has an orange plantation. He makes $6,000. We know this because he writes it in his journal in 1866. He is really rich. He's a bachelor. He's living at Kalu Kalu. He's got this fabulous orange plantation. 1867 comes. There is a blight. His orange trees do not produce any oranges. And these oranges are wrapped up in paper and sent to Honolulu and sent everywhere. Maybe to California. So Mr. Greenwell decides, what the hey, I will go on a trip around the world and I will investigate the health of citrus plantations elsewhere. So he goes to Honolulu in like March of 1867 and he gets on a giant steamer, the Formica, which is a strange name, and he heads off to Hong Kong, Singapore, he goes to Sri Lanka, he goes to Bombay, he goes to Aden. It's such a great time to be traveling. The 
Suez Canal is almost open, but it isn't. And he gets into the Mediterranean and he goes to Naples. He goes to St. Peter's. He says, oh, I had a horrible idea about Roman Catholic churches that they were all tinsel and tawdry. He loves them. He loves statuary. He loves the Pietà. He is just amazed. He goes over the Alps into France on a carriage, watching the rocks tumble down the side of the Alps. He's got a terrible fear of heights. He's just paralyzed with fear. And he gets down to the bottom, and he gets a train, and he goes into Paris. You think, okay, what's going on in June of 1867? It is the Exposition Internationale. It's a huge World's Fair. And he goes to this World's Fair, and there are the goods of Hawaii. There's sugar, coffee, Queen Emma's beautiful ivory necklaces. I know it inspired him. He goes to England. He says hi to his mother, who's still alive. Then he crosses the sea. He's leaving England. He is never going to live in Europe. He is heading back to the West. And he goes to Brazil, because Brazil is the land of the citrus tree. And he travels up the coast of Brazil and goes into the British West Indies. So all those little Caribbean islands. And he runs around. He spends several months there. And he ends up on the tiny, tiny island of Montserrat, where there is a giant series of lime plantations that have been developed by the English without slave labor. America's just finished with the horrible civil war and grappling with all sorts of ghastly things, but England grappled a little earlier. He finds on the island of Montserrat a plantation called Ulveston, and it is managed by Mr. Hall. He had a tour of the lime plantation, and it probably looked really lovely, and he was staring at all these limes. Then he was invited for tea with Mrs. Hall. Mrs. Hall and Mr. Hall have a very eligible eldest daughter, Elizabeth Caroline Hall, who was raised in England and now has been living in Montserrat for like probably nine years. And this is a little tiny island with not many eligible Englishmen to marry. And Mr. Greenwell writes in this fragment of a diary that he wrote to Mr. Hall proposing marriage. That, you know, I would like your daughter's hand. Doesn't write to her. Doesn't say anything. No, he writes to the father, and it takes them like four days to answer. Mr. Greenwell is now in his forties. He's in his early forties. He probably looks very severe. He has that beard. Lizzie, that's her name. Lizzie, is like twenty-six, and you know, petite and pretty, and is the eldest of seven children. And I'm sure she's like, what? You want me to go live in the Sandwich Islands with a complete stranger? I'm going to have to cross into the Pacific Ocean where I've never been in my entire life and live on a volcano? Ah! She already lives on a volcano. Montserrat is a volcano. They say yes. I'm sure this was a group decision, and Mr. Greenwell is terribly happy. They have to wait around for a month and read the bands, and they're married at a church by the Reverend Shervington. The halls are, all the English are all Anglicans, you know, and they all play the organ. Granny knows how to play music and sing hymns. And he takes her away. And there's no Panama Canal. They ride a little choo-choo train. It's horribly rickety and terrible. And they catch the mail boat up to San Francisco and they sail off to Hawaii. And she arrives in Kona, I think it's like June 3rd, 1868, which is the year of the giant earthquake the worst earthquake that ever happened in the history of Hawaii. So Kona is a devastated ruin. But thank goodness, not Kalu Kalu. Their home is up. They come back. She lives through the Kaona uprising, which is the most awful, terrible, bloody thing that went on in Kona post the battle at Mokuohai and Lekeleke graveyard, you know, when Kamehameha II tries to fight with his cousin Keikua Okalani. Have you ever heard of the Kaona uprising? I have not. 
And this is the perfect place to pause the conversation with Miley Melrose and pick it up again next week, where we will hear about the Kaona uprising and more about the Greenwells in Hawaii, land acquisitions, and a whole bunch more. By the way, regarding that earthquake, the 1868 earthquake that Miley referenced, I looked it up and I was pretty intrigued. And I talked to Brian Shiro of Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, who's their earthquake expert, their seismologist. He confirmed that this island still has aftershocks very occasionally from that earthquake in 1868. That's how big it was. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Next week, we'll pick up this conversation with Miley Melrose and hear the rest of the story. By the way, I will be be posting a bonus podcast, a short conversation with Jeff Bauer, the chief scientist for the Submillimeter Array here in Hawaii, all about the Breakthrough Prize in Fundamental Physics, which is the biggest academic prize. It has a $3 million award, and it was just given to scientists and technicians who were involved in the confirmation of the first black hole, Povehi, and that picture you probably have seen. There was a total of 347 people all around the world who were involved in making making this discovery and were named as prize winners here in Hawaii. There were 30 scientists and technicians who were involved. A pretty exciting situation. Anyway, I will see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Until then, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoiho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.